Chicken. I'm having cod goujons, which oh, I think oh. I'm having cod goujons. I think the word goujons quite—it's quite posh. Well, that sums up the difference in our lifestyles. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are established, uh, well-respected gentleman around town. <laughs> You're not. <laughs> and I'm the wilder. <laughs> the wilder over. Yeah, so I've yeah. called it No Nay Never, the podcast. Right. Okay. Because the, the ideas we talk, we talk about. Well, there's a perception that men don't talk. Um, which is probably true, although I'm not sure if it is. Um, maybe we don't listen. Mm. But we, I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts on that. Well, I think. I mean, um, I came last week, didn't I, with the storytellers for the for the launch of the Pals project, and yeah. um, something amazing happened after that, really, because I, I went there to do a piece about the launch of the Pals project, which is about getting men to talk. By the time I got home, I had an email from uh, a guy called Andrew, um, telling me about how um, being part of Infant Hercules had saved his life, because he just, he just said, look, I was going to commit suicide, and then I got a phone message saying, don't forget choir practice, and I just thought, it was just a paragraph email, and I just thought, what an amazing thing, went out to talk to him, asked if I could tell his story, went out to talk to him. And he just talked about his own mental health and how it reached the point where he was on a viaduct on Tayside, ready to jump off. Yeah. And then he got this message saying, don't forget choir practice, and it saved his life. And it's just, that to me was just an amazing moment. Really. Well, I suppose like, as, a, as a, a journalist, I know as we've talked before, and you, you've kind of got a real passion for people's stories, but I suppose on the whole, when we hear about things like suicide and mental health, there's a lot tends to be down the statistics that have been given out or a press release from the health service yeah. or whatever. But to actually have that first hand, you don't see the human in a press release. You d- you don't get the kind of human story behind it. And the thing about Andrew's story was the fact that he could not understand why he felt the way he did. You know, he said to me, "Lovely wife." Great kids, well-paid job, nice home to live in. There is no reason why I should feel in such complete despair that I park my car and walk to the top of a viaduct and I'm preparing to throw myself off. There is no logic to mental health. And that's what struck me, that, you know, you think of people and what they're going through um, and sometimes you can't explain why. No, and I think, especially when you're in the midst of it as well, so when you're feeling that way, I've described it as kind of trying to walk through fog, and you just can't. And then when I did my walk in Ireland, and we, we were up in, um, is it Toft Hill, the, the highest pub in... Oh, Toft Hill. Yeah. Uh, no, 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 uh, Tan Hill. Tan Hill. Yeah, yeah. And we were walking over this bloody moor, yeah. and the fog came down, and the snow came down, we were, and, and I was with a guy who used to be around there, and I was with Mick Riley has done loads of stuff around the world, and we were both, we were all going, we're completely lost, yeah. and it's quite scary physically, and that's kind of what it's like, in my experience, mentally, but it's like, your brain's broken, yeah. because, you know, so if you break your leg, you're not going to do a marathon, are you? No. In fact, you're yeah. going to find it hard to walk 10, 
steps. Yeah. And it's the same when you when your brain is that whatever it is, mashed, broken, however you want to describe it, it it's very difficult then to to get into that logical yeah, yeah. bit where you can just go Yeah. You know, this is what it is. And what I think that's is. why people struggle really you know, really yeah. sick. Because what are you gonna say when I feel like feel depressed and a lot of people would, would then go pull yourself out all of that sort of stuff but actually we're quite limited by the vocabulary that yeah, we've yeah. got yeah i think the other thing is that talking to andrew what you start to realize is that you open up yourself you know because he's talking about what's happened to him in such a personal way and he's having the courage to do that so I found myself saying to him, well, actually, you know, I was being, I was being treated for depression just before I left as editor of the Northern Echo. And I was, I was good. we were going through a period where it was all about cost-cutting and redundancies, and I was taking it to bed with me, and I was worrying about it, and people's lives were being affected. And, and I just found myself walking around town in Darlington, and I, I was bursting into tears, and I didn't think but I'm mentally ill. I didn't think about depression or mental illness. I just thought, you know, it didn't occur to me until a friend of mine who was a doctor, a GP, turned up at reception one day and said, I need to go and I need to talk to you. And I said, why? And he said, well, you're not yourself. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I think you're ill. And, uh, and that led to me being diagnosed with depression. And I'm not, you know, I was nowhere near the level that Andrew was at in terms of like feeling suicide or anything like that. I was just sad and I was just, you know, and it was, um, and I needed treatment, but if I hadn't had that treatment, where might that have gone, you know? But the point, the point for me was when, when somebody talks to you about their problems, you're more likely to talk to them about, well, actually, so how many of us have actually been there, but we've never talked about it, but because people start to open up and share with you you share back to them and I think that's the great thing about the stuff that you're doing with the Pals Project and Infant Hercules it becomes alright to talk yeah well I, I think you've got to and in order to talk you've got to create the right context and that's not necessarily for everyone about right, as, as soon as you say right you're going to go you're going to go and talk to someone you're going to go and talk to a counsellor or a psychologist or a doctor for a lot of people, that's the instant barrier. Yeah. You know, because we forget that a lot of people, you know, the, the doctor to a lot of people is like a signal that, you know, they're ill, that they don't know what, what the next stage is going to be. So I think what things like Infinergy the PALS is, all, is, is about more than anything, it's just going, right, it's here. Mm -hmm. Use it for what you want, but don't feel you have to talk as well. Yeah, yeah. Because actually, sometimes you listening is, certainly in my experience, whether good counsellor just sits there and listens and eventually I've talked myself yeah. into the right yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, because I, I owned an art and, you know, it, it, this is a, a man's project and I think the dynamic of men getting together is very different yeah. to when you mix, you know, get yeah. together and whatever. And it's not to say that that isn't also useful and it isn't helpful and whatever, but I think men have a certain, they sort of hunting packs to them and, hmm? and they kind yeah. of get each other to yeah. a certain extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the way things have a knock-on effect as well, and after I, after I spoke to Andrew, so, you know, Andrew's email came because I came to the, the launch of the PALS project. I go and talk to Andrew. He tells this incredible story, um, which is ultimately one of, you know, optimism, really, because, you know, he didn't, he didn't go through with it because he'd found something that would help him through it. But I wrote about that in the Northern Echo, and, uh, and the response to that column has been um, bigger than anything I've had for a long time, that people actually sort of, it, it struck a chord with a lot of people. One person even sent me an email saying that because he'd read that piece, he decided to go and get help. And so he'd been hiding away from it, and trying to sort of brush it under the carpet like men tend to do. Mm -hmm. But because Andrew had the courage to tell his story, he was going to go and get help. And uh, to me, you know, that is like so important. And it's what, like what being a journalist for me is like all about. How can you make a difference to people's lives? Yeah. Um, 
and uh, you know and the kind of stuff that that you do it's clearly making a difference which has got to be great yeah and I, think, I think the thing is you know you know I always talk about positivity in the press and stuff like that I'm probably writing this was, was you know on the face of it, it's quite a, out there subject it's quite a scary thing to write but it's part of life yeah man. yeah it's absolutely part of life, you know? yeah someone, absolutely. someone said to me you know, it does remind me that death is part of life yeah and, yeah. and we shouldn't be frightened to talk about it even when we're all terrified of it we talk, we're scared of talking about all sorts, aren't we? So yeah, we've been talking about suicide, which is a taboo subject. Yeah. And the other thing where I think we share a, share a connection and an experience is like over, over the whole bowel cancer thing. And yeah, like, yeah. you know, because it's about bottoms and like men, yeah. men are dying of embarrassment, you know. Yeah. And we've got, we had a mutual friend in Ali Brownlee, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, who, who died of... Um, who died very sadly died of bowel cancer, and there's like a massive outpouring of, of affection, quite rightly, yeah. you know, for him. Um, but that kind of led to sort of increased awareness of look, you know, men are dying because they don't want to go to the doctor and say, "Have a look up there," you know. I don't want to. <clears throat> I don't want to shatter my <clears throat> South Bank credentials here by saying I'm a member of a tennis club now and all that kind of stuff but you know I, I, talk, I went and talked to my mates in the tennis club who were like you know lawyers and um, doctors and stuff and like most of them have ignored the letter it, which is just incredible to me they get the letter saying you're at that age where you, you go and have it you get it at 50 I got it at 55 I think I think I might have reduced it I think I might be due to get that on my birthday right I might put it on the mantelpiece from the other cars you get the letter (laughs) but all these lads in this tennis club had sort of pushed it to one side you know I think there was only two of us who actually said I'm going to go and get that done and maybe for me it was maybe because of what Ali went through and everything but I had it done but um it's, it is, you know, let, let's not sort of beat about the bush. It is embarrassing. Yeah. You know what I mean? But 90% of something of men who actually go and have that test survive. If, they, if they've got if bowel they've cancer, found, yeah, if yeah, they're yeah. found to have bowel cancer at an early stage, it can be, it can be cured. 90-odd percent. So, you know, what's a bit of embarrassment when it comes to, you know... But when I went to have mine, it was, like, it was quite funny because I went to, uh, to the hospital and... Um, because I've been editor of the Northern Echo for a long time, so you kind of get well known and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. And uh, and I went in, and the nurse says to me, she said, right, she said, uh, she says you've got to put uh, there's two there's two um, what they call them uh, not aprons um, dressing gowns. You've got two dressing gowns to put on. One ties at the front, one ties at the back, and you've got a pair of paper pants to put on. Is that all right? And I said, yeah, that's fine. She went out the room, she came back in and she said, uh, she looked at me, she said, what have you done? And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you're supposed to probably put your arms through the, the sleeves, right? So I tied myself up like a penguin. I was like in a straitjacket with all these, because I panic. You know, like, yeah. I've got to get this, I've got to yeah, get this, yeah. this on before she comes back. Shaking, shaking and yeah. I'm thinking, she's outside with a stopwatch. <laughs> she's telling me I've got this right so she comes in and she says look I'm going to have to do it for you is that alright because they're waiting for you in theatre and I said yeah that's fine so she said right okay so she takes a pair of scissors gets the first dressing gown off takes the second dressing gown off I'm stood there in a pair, a pair of paper pants right and she says to me I'm sorry to ask you said but are you Peter Barron from the Northern Echo and I'm thinking there's times where you want to be recognised and there's times where you don't do you know what I mean and I, and I just said I denied all knowledge I said no I don't know who he is <laughs> so there's a funny side Whether, and I think that has to be I think I think if we could all kind of uh, send ourselves forward at that time where we're telling these stories in the pub afterwards yeah we'd all just go it's just an it's all, yeah, yeah but it, it, you almost feel like everyone should go together I know <laughs> I know like, we should actually like, like a stag do like when you give blood and you're all in the room and you're, you're, you're like there's a camaraderie in there you're alright there mate yeah well it, life, life is funny isn't it you know and it's like when you go and have your bowel cancer thing and they stick the tube up inside you and all the rest of it. And uh, but there's a there's a there's a nurse at like that end, but there's a nurse who talks to you as well. Yeah. At, at your head, you know. And it's like 
Have you been on holiday yet this year? You know, you start talking, well, we went to Croatia, you know, and it's like, <coughs> Dubrovnik's a lovely city, and I said to her, you're, you've got like, have you got like a list of questions that you ask people yeah. to take their minds off it? You know, and we were like just having a laugh about it, but it's just, there is anything you look, you know, there is a funny side to it, I think, and it's just, well, you I know. That's one of, the, one of the strengths of British people, seaside people, is we tend to find everything quite funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll advocate this, like, group battle. I think it's a good idea that we should all go through it. We all should go through it together. Yeah? I'm not, I'm, I don't know you that well. No, but I, I, I'm, it's easy for me to say because I've already had it. Yeah, so I don't have yeah. to join you, you see. Yeah. So you can go and have your community battle check, you know, yeah. together with all your mates, and I'll stay out with it. I'll write about it. On your 50th. On your 50th. Yeah, I think it's a postcode thing. I think the age that you have it done depends upon where you live. So some in some places it's fifty five. Yeah, if you live in some, if you live in Buckinghamshire, you get it when you're thirty three or something. But if you live in Southbank, you don't get it till you're seventy. Um, but no, I was I live in Herworth on Tees, you see. So I got mine when I was fifty five. But um, no, I mean seriously, you've got you've just got to say. You know, I am going to have this done because it's it, it makes absolute common sense. You and, know, and, and I, you know, we I, I I knew Ali really well as a friend and talked to him. He was a, such a great supportive bloke, and he's the sort of bloke who would who would say kind of do as I say, not as I. Do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if he was here now, he yeah. Would, of course, I mean, of course you do. Yeah. You know. And there's no suggestion, I don't, there's no, no suggestion that Ali had ignored anything, no. he was just unlucky, yeah. you know. Um, but the point is, get it done, because if there is anything in there, catch it early, you're going to live. The chances are absolutely in your favour, yeah, you know. An hour Ign of embarrassment ignore it. Here we go. That's great. Thank you very much. Lovely. Thank you. I can't see the salt, so I could oh, do with some salt. Because we don't advocate to use the salt, do we? No, no, no. no, no, no. It'll only be a very tiny amount of salt. <laughs> there you go. Anything thank else? You. That's great. Well, thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you very much. So, yeah. So, from Bowers so to Goujons. From Bowers. <laughs> what is a Goujons? I don't know, really. Like, what like, it's what like, does it mean? Well, I think it's like somewhere between. You get like fish and chips, or you get fish fingers. Somewhere in the middle is a goujon. I don't know. I don't want to put you off. It sounds a bit like a hemorrhoid. <laughs> so <laughs> no. I've just found an awkward goujon. Yes, I know. It just sounds like a medical condition. But no. <laughs> no, I'm gonna. Uh, so yeah, bon appetit. There we go. Yeah, I'm juiced. I've still got. Um, talking about Ali, you know, and you talk about laughter and stuff like that. If ever I'm feeling down now, I've got this. Um, I've got this recording of Ali Brownlee. I keep on. I keep on my uh, desktop on my laptop, and it's when we would we do this thing called the headline challenge on BBC Tees every morning, where we come up with a funny story, and I have to come up with a headline, and then um, the listeners have to come up with a better headline than me. And the funniest one ever, and it was only because Ali corpsed in the middle of it all. He just couldn't stop laughing. And what it was, the story was. Sounds like a daft story, but it was about um, a billboard in Los Angeles advertising a kettle, a new, new, new type of kettle. Mm. And the kettle had gone, this billboard had gone viral on the internet because it looked like Hitler, right? So it had a button like that looked like a little moustache and the spout was, was at the right angle for a kind of, you know, a Hitler salute. So the story was that this kettle looked like Hitler. And so I'd come up with a headline. So I goes on BBC TV and I said, right, the headline, the story is that Hitler's, this kettle looks like Hitler. So Ali Brownlee says, and Peter, what's your headline? And I said, mine brewer. Right, mine brewer was the headline. Anyway, about an hour later, we have the listeners' headlines coming on. And somebody had sent in this headline, which was, uh, Hitler has only got one boil. Right. At which point, Ali... Ali just collapsed, absolutely collapsed on live on air. I, you know, well, you know when someone's laughing, yeah. it, it's infectious. Yeah. We, we both couldn't carry on. And 
and it was just a complete. And I, but I keep that on my laptop. And on the anniversary of his death every year, I, I put it out on Facebook yeah. or Twitter. And I listen to it, and I just think it's just like it reminds me of what a great bloke he was. But it also reminds me of the, like, the value of like laughing about stuff, you know, exactly. and just overcoming those kind of you know taboos and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, so. absolutely. Shall we all have a break? Mm. You need your yeah, uh, yeah. Goujons. I'll have my on my hemorrhoids. Okay, up. I only met you, I don't know, three years ago when you were doing the Sunflower Project. Well, um, it, was, it was 2014. 2014, yeah. yeah. But I don't really know much about you other than the Sunflower Project, yeah. the Pals Project, Infant Hercules, and um, what's your story, I suppose? <laughs> in, in, we'll give you the shorter version. Of right, OK. So, yeah, so... Um, Everything I've done has just been by accident because I can't do anything else, basically. So, I, to the age of eight, yeah, 1977, uh, I went to Catholic school. We were, we were a Catholic family, but we were, it was never one of those, you know, the oldest son will be the priest, just fairly standard, conventional family. But I remember going to school that day and they gave out an award for best prayer. Best prayer? The best prayer. So I thought, I'll have a bit of that. So, um, so there I was, I was eight, and I won the award. And I don't know what, how the judge did. What was your technique? Well, I went for stance. Stance? I went for stance uh, and uh, sincerity. But, like, to this day, I think I was praying to win, which probably isn't the best, the most moral-ethical no, no. way of praying. No. But I won anyway, and I, I got this little box of um, like candy letters. I always remember it, and I went over and I got all these letters, and I thought, I must be quite good at that. And then the same year, uh, a white father missionary came in with this like massive like tusk like, <laughs> that he brought over from Africa talked about his work in the missions and stuff like that and I thought I like the idea of helping people and then I thought well if I like the idea of helping people and I've won an award for good prayer yeah, yeah. the priesthood <laughs> seems to be the decision so that was it so I decided to be a priest when I was eight and I went all the way through school and everyone knew I was going to be a priest was this in Stockton though? you, yeah, you were yeah. at school in Stockton St Cuthbert in Stockton yeah. right um, and then I went to our lady in St Bede in Stockton um, where we were led by Sister Mary, who always let me off if ever I was naughty. It couldn't have been me because I'm only a priest. And went to St Mary's College in Middlesbrough. The thing is, if ever you got into trouble, you could always say, well, I'm an award-winning prayer, couldn't you? Well, there is that. Um, and there was, there was one occasion in uh, third year in secondary school Year nine, as it would be known now, where some, uh, shall we say, uh, inappropriate magazines were found <laughs> in school. And I remember every lad had to report to B Block Hall. And they were taking it, there was a little music room next door, B Block Music Room. And everyone was caved one by one because no one had admitted to who brought in the inappropriate uh, magazines. And, and it wasn't me. Um, but I remember I went in and they just sort of like, it can't be him. It can't be him. It so can't I didn't be get him. hit, and off I went again. So it was quite a good defence mechanism. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, got through school, went to St Mary's College, did my A-levels, and at the end of that, that was when you're 18, that's when you can apply. Yeah. So I applied to the bishop, saw the bishop. They were all dressed in bishop kind of vestments, and you had to go for a psychological test. <laughs> we were not the boy or anything like that? Oh, yeah, I was yeah. all of that. I was really good at it as well. I was brilliant at like candles and I was, I was And your stance was still stance perfected. Was always there. Yeah. I'm the interview and then I got a letter back. It fully expected because this by now I've been planning it for ten years and I've done everything you were meant to do. Um, and I got a letter back saying, you know, we, we don't think you're ready yet. So I was like, right, so what should I do? And they went, right, go to university. So the only other thing I, I felt I could do was music. So I went to Leeds University. What did they say why you weren't ready? They just kept saying you need more life experience. Right. 
So I went off and I did a year at Leeds University. So it was to get life experience, but I didn't really want any life experience. So I went, I stayed in lodgings in Kirkston in Leeds. This is Barris, who was rock hard and um, in a little council house. And she used to like tell the neighbours off if they were swearing. And stuff. It was quite a, it was quite a tasty area, shall we say. I always remember going around one, uh, one night, I can say this because it's a podcast, um, and they were having a doctor children around, and uh, she went down, and I was in my bedroom upstairs, and I heard her say, Keep here, fucking lounge down there, fucking lounge down there, it's going to be a fucking Mrs. Barris was brilliant. I remember one night she came, she used to go and do, go to the bingo every Thursday night, I think, and I, I sort of woke up, and, and I, I saw a little envelope coming under the uh, under the door, and she'd won. So she'd give me 50 quid. Really? She'd won at the bingo, yeah. She was great. But I'd, I basically, she was a feeder. She just, I used to get fed over and over, big Yorkshire dinners. And I didn't really mix at university. So Did you get a degree, though? No. So basically, at the end of the first year, I went, I, I'd had enough. I thought, oh, what's the point of this? Um, and it said, right, if you stay and do your exams, we'll give you a year out. This right. was in 988. Um, so I did my exams, and I haven't gone back. I'm still on a year out. Right. So, right. so that was that. And then, so I applied again. <laughs> and um, Bishop said, you're not ready. So I was like, what am I going to do now then? So he said, right, get yourself a job. Get yourself a job, and uh, I'll so, for six months, and I'll sort you another job for six months. And I was like, right, and I kind of went, and then when I went to seminary, and he was like, well, we'll see, we'll see. Anyway, very wise man, this bishop. So I became a postman right. for six months. Loved it. If I could be offered another job now, I'd be a postman. Every yeah. day. I just loved the the whole thing about it. And then he got me a job in a children's home in Newcastle. The first 24 hours of working there, I would say, absolutely that this moment where I wanted to have my own kids. Right. Decided I didn't want to be a priest. Right. So I had the six months loving working with kids. And you know, to this day I still love working with children and whatever. And went for the interview and I didn't dare tell anyone. You know, earlier we were talking about yeah, yeah. the fear of yeah, yeah. admitting stuff. So yeah. went for my interview with the bishop again. Congratulations, you've come You're ready. And it was the worst news of my life. But I was like, well, I went after it now. I couldn't tell anyone. So went off, and then in October of that year, started at Ushaw. And I think we began on the Friday. And on the Sunday, I had a complete meltdown. And on the Sunday, in the seminary in those days, all the priests would go out to the parishes on that. So there was no one to talk to when I was running around. I started to think, well, I was at the end of everything really. Mm. I, was, I was staying on what's called Tip Top. So I was on the top floor and I was looking out, looking down, thinking, well, do I jump? What do I do? What do I do? And I thought, mm. right, I'm going to have one more knock on the doors to see if there's anyone I can talk to. And I knocked on the door and I was like, I can't remember his name, but he was an Irish priest. And he looked at me and I looked at him and went, you better come in. And I went in and he poured whiskey. And he told me all about how he'd been a professional rugby player. Until he, I think he broke his leg or something like that, and he, he said that his life just changed instantly. And he had a period of depression and all this, and he thought, what am I going to do? And eventually right. he became a priest, and he was right. a great bloke. Anyway, to cut that story short, we then we decided, you know, well, I was just in, I wasn't in a state to be able to do anything. Yeah, I, was, yeah. I was amidst a, what then called a breakdown, whatever it was. And they dropped me off at drum station no bags or anything, I left all my stuff in Ushaw and I got the train home. So you were just, you were just literally there for a, a weekend? I was there for three days, yeah. It was, it was the most intense three days I've ever known. Mm. Um, and people have said, well, you weren't there long enough or what, you know, you didn't give it your, your all or whatever, but it was, it was so intense, yeah. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't do it. I'd, you know, I would have loved Have you I, ever been back? Yeah, I, I went back to exercise the ghost. As yeah, it yeah, yeah. So did you after that experience? Then, did you did it, did it put you off the church? Are you still do you still practice as a Catholic now? Or? No, I, I always kind of joke and say I'm having time off in Lee. Yeah, I was there every day for like yeah, yeah, years. Yeah. It 
my best friend was a priest in Kilkenny. Right. The Wildcats of Kilkenny. Right. He was the one who, who really saw me through it all. Right. Um, I think what it eventually, when you start to reflect on it, you just realise that there's lots of. You might have a destination in mind, but there's lots of routes to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't knock at anyone who could do it. No, it I wasn't just for me. Because I, I was brought up in a Catholic family and I went, you know, to a Catholic school and all that. But it put me off the whole experience of going to confession. You know, we've talked yeah, about yeah, you yeah. talk to people, the importance of talking to people. But as a child, being told to go into this black box yeah. and talk to this guy through this mesh and actually make up sins because I was like, <laughs> I can't think of anything I've done wrong. And he'd say to me, well, think harder. And then, then I'd have to lie. I was lying in confession about yeah. things I hadn't done, yeah. just to get out. Yeah. And it put me off, really. Yeah, I remember when, just years after Ushaw, I thought I could do a talk with someone about all this. Because I never really, basically, when I left Ushaw, I then spent more or less a year mm. not leaving the house. Yeah. Uh, drinking heavily, in bits, crying. Didn't want to go to church, and you know, didn't know where I was going, whatever. But um, years later, when I finally pulled myself around, I went, I don't know, I thought I'll go to confession. So I went to see this priest and went, right, uh, come and see me. Uh, he, he kind of knew part of my story, so come and see me um, next week, we'll, we'll have confession. And I was in there for three hours. Really? And he went, right, we'll start with the Ten Commandments. I was like, oh, I didn't even know what they were. And uh, we went through each one, and he just he unpicked my entire life. So how many, how many of them have you broken then? I didn't say I've broken any of them. Twelve. How did you? So from that. So you know, from that. How did you? How did you rebuild your life then from there? Complete. Uh, one of those strange things that happened in life. Um, my old music teacher from St Mary's, whether he'd heard, to this day I don't know whether he'd heard, but rang our house months after, as I said, it was nearly a year, and said, right, I'm doing a gig yeah. at St Mary's, because he used to do jazz gigs and something. It's a brilliant musician. He said, um, you should come down with your fiddle. And I was like, because when I was at college, I was renowned for being a priest, and playing the devil went down with George. Very loud and very fast. Not basically. And I was like, well, I haven't played it for two years. And he was like, doesn't matter, just come down and play. So Oliver, my friend from Kilkenny, said, I think that'd be a good idea. So he took me over and I did this little like jazz gig. And I met a few like young lads and that. They were all about six years older than me. And, and, and I kind of, people were happy, people were cheering. And I was like, I quite like the idea of making people happy. You know? Yeah, yeah. So that was probably the spark. Um, that then made me think, well, maybe I can do something with this violin. Because I couldn't do anything else to do. Did you become a music teacher as a result of that? Was that, was that the path you, you took? At the same time, my uh, dad had a friend, Jean Slater, who's an amazing woman. We used to work for the employment service. And she, she grabbed over me and she went, right, you need structure. I was like, right. So they sent me on this 12-week course uh, in Hartlepool. I used to get the 227 bus on Stock Night Street. They'd get the bus at 8, they'd get me at Hartlepool, spend the day in Hartlepool. I was the only person there who hadn't been in prison. Right. And it was like basic skills and positive thinking. And funnily enough, and coincidentally enough, they, they were asking me to think about what sort of job you'd want. And I decided I want to be a journalist. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, I, I right. did uh, a week at the Hartlepool Mail. Did you? I did, yeah. And I did get a job. But, um, I, I think it was that whole thing of me being interested in people and stories. It was all yeah, yeah. So I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but I couldn't find the right. Yeah. What is that job? Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, that it was the structure that got me going again because it meant I was leaving the house. Yeah. Coming home, blah blah blah. And then some jobs came up in Billingham at the Department of Trade and Industry. So I, I became a national inquiry point for importing. Right. Obviously, because <coughs> I know loads about that. Yeah. So I worked there for a year while I was there. I was didn't in. didn't make any use of your violin though. No, I, I, well I found this band Harley Strum, which was like Stefan Grappelli on acid, <laughs> because I, I I started 
improvise at home. So I'd go into the bedroom and I'd put a Stefan Rapelli tape on and play along. Then I wanted to play it faster, yeah, yeah. but you couldn't speed it up. Yeah. So I was doing that and then I'd go down to the black ball in the yard and there was a trap jazz band playing and I'd sit in the back and try and improvise. And then I suddenly thought, oh, I could do this. So I formed a little band that we played in the info when they weren't playing. Yeah. And it went through the roof and then it's all for the same, but they got the sack and we got the gig. And was that the start of the that Wildcats? Was the high, and so that was highly strung and then that sort of lasted for a bit and then people went off to university because they were all younger than me. And then um, I didn't do anything musically really and then I decided, right, I'll go to university and I wanted to find a course where you could use music to do good and I found it at Newcastle Poly. So I went up to Newcastle Poly and that's but it's stuff ninety one and I formed Wildcats. So what was the course? What what's called creative arts? And in your third year you set yourself up in business. And I became the musician in residence in Hardwick in Stockton. Uh, in the hotel? No, in the housing estate. Oh right. And I did a carnival through the streets of Hardwick with churches and schools and, and then we did a Wildcats game in the shops. And were you getting paid by this time? Were you getting any money? I think I got a little bit of funding from someone to do it. But basically, I set up a street band yeah. in Ardwick that then went in the Riverside Festival, and that was the start of our relationship the Riverside Festival. Right. So one thing led to another. So were you actually ever a music teacher? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So then, in schools? Yeah, Gordon Steele, I mentioned, when I'd left university, rang me up in mid-November of 1994, it must have been, and he said, we've got this annual Christmas show, we sell thousands of tickets. We haven't got a music teacher um, and we've got no songs written, can you come in for a few days? So I did. And I wrote the musical basically. And then I had nothing else to do. So I just I went to every show and I, I did like live music on it and I, I was quite naive really and at the end I went, you didn't have to do this, you've just been here for like three weeks and yeah, yeah. Be paying. do you want a job? So they, they brought a couple of days a week and then stopped in sixth form asked if I'd go and do some work as a musician in residence there. And then all that happened and then I, can't, I, I always get muddled up with my CV but eventually over the years I ended up teaching music at St Mary's, mm. John Potter's old job, the guy mm. who saved me if you like, uh, taught in Sacred Heart in Red Cat. And then went back to Stockton Billingham as the head of performing arts right. and established it as the centre of vocational so, excellence. What, what would you say then? Because so, I'm thinking, I, I'm thinking like a dad now, you know. So I'm a dad, yeah. And I've gone through that whole thing where you know what are your kids going to do with their lives. So yeah. I've got four kids and whatever. So you know, I'm going through that period now where one of my kids is like doesn't really know what they want to do. Yeah. Went to university wasn't for them, and there's this trying to find this balance between trying to point your kids in the right direction but not putting too much pressure on them because how many kids under that kind of pressure take their own lives or you know whatever and it's like so what what would you say having been through what you went through what would you say to them? I now say um, don't get too hung up on looking for like everyone says what do you want to be when you yeah yeah and I say don't worry about growing up yet. <laughs> That's phase one. Yeah. Why, why think yourself ten years into the future? Because I, you know, that's yeah, what yeah. I did. But what I say is right. Think about what it is that you're really quite good at. Yeah. And what is it that really makes you buzz? And what, what, you know. So what is it that makes your personality kind of feel I'm doing the right thing? And then stick them two things together and there might yeah. be something that exists yeah yeah and if there isn't you just do it so how old were you when you felt that you'd actually got to the point where you were financially independent realized that you had a, a job you know yeah. how old were you you know by the time you got to that point right i don't think i have yet <laughs> <laughs> i think um, i've had options everywhere I've worked to move up the career ladder. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I went from head of performing arts, you know, I went ahead of faculty, then it was like, I could be a deputy principal or a principal. Yeah, I was yeah. like, oh my word. Yeah, yeah. Because that would take, yeah, so that's what I'm, I'm good at that. Yeah. But it's not what makes me buzz. No. So I think probably in my personality, I have to have that 
that kind of that I feel like I'm doing something that contributes to the world is my first yeah. driver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the second driver is right. I want to make that care for my family and. Because there's a fear, isn't there? I think there's a real fear. So for me, growing up in Teesside, you know, I was my dad was a steel worker, my mum was a post lady, um, and I got to 19 or whatever. I did A-Labs, I got to 19, and I thought I've got to get a job. I was I was terrified of like, what am I going to do? And my dad was saying you should be a welder, and I said, well, I don't want to be a welder, and I wanted to be a writer, but it was just I was driven by fear, and I sometimes look back and think. I was too I was too frightened to to enjoy my life at that point because I was thinking I've got to get on the treadmill and I don't get me wrong I mean I I enjoyed what I did I was lucky because I knew what I wanted to do and I went and got on a newspaper but it's that how many kids must feel I don't like think it's that, just kids though is it no I, think, I mean we were talking earlier about like, you know um, before we started recording I think and I think you said oh you know maybe I work for another three years. Yeah. So we set ourselves yeah, like, yeah. these targets, but of course life's so random, fluid. That actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm all about thinking for the future, planning for the future for my family and stuff like that. But I could walk out of here, yeah, yeah, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. I'm gone, so I'm, I'm, I'm not saying just live for the day, but I've had enough rough times in my life to realise that actually life's really, really precious. Yeah, and. Sometimes it doesn't really matter how you plan it out. So have you got? Have you not set yourself any targets now for like what you want to do in the future? Do you do you not know what you want to do? No. You just take things as they come I along. Take things as they come along, which is scary. Yeah. And probably not wise. Mm. But that's sort of how I am. You know, it's like. Trying to get a mortgage when you're self-employed and all that sort of thing is a bit of a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sometimes I think, right, I'll get a job. I'll just go and get a job. I can get a job. I'm a qualified teacher. And then, you know, Ellen, my wife or others will go, well, that'll kill you. Mm-hmm. And I kind of go, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm a little bit more philosophical about it now because if it's say, say for example, I think, right, I'll, I'll apply for a job, I might even in my head think, right, I'll do that for a I'll have a plan to it. Yeah. Um, but I'm really fortunate in the work that I do. A, that I do get paid for it a lot of the time. Um, B, I, it's not really work. It's just life. It's just, yeah. I'm still kind of living out of vocation or something next day. Do you still have mental health issues? Or have you got, are, are you over all yeah, of that? No, seems to be, it seems to crop up. about every seven years seems to be and it tends to be when something comes along that I can't fully control because mm. I'm a bit of a control freak mm. so I'll give you an example so I'd always wanted kids yeah, yeah. Left yeah. and the next time the depression hit me and nearly destroyed me and everyone around me was just after my baby was born the first baby was born and I was like what you know, we talked about Andrew earlier. Yeah, yeah. I should have been the happiest man on the planet. Yeah, yeah. And it absolutely destroyed me. And, I, and, I, and it was partly like, it'd been a very difficult birth. And Helen, I don't know how to do it, really. But Helen yeah. would end up with an emergency scenario. And, and, and. And I was working freelance and work self-employed. I was, I was trying to keep things going. And then we were struggling on the nights because Rosie wasn't sleeping and uh, all these things were going on. And in the end, I just had a meltdown because I was trying to give everything to everyone with no consideration. It was just basically burning me out. Yeah. So I, I get to these burnout moments and they, I think I'll always have this tendency. It, it's both a need to work my socks off if it is working, whatever it is, or live a full life. But it's also a danger. Mm. And what I probably need to do is be more self awareness in terms of stopping it. Do you think you try and cram stuff in too much? Do you think you try because I sometimes think God, I'm I'm fifty I'm fifty seven in a month's time. And I'm like getting to the point now where I'm thinking 
I'm running out of time here. And I, I, I suppose I'm still relatively young, but I'm thinking, I haven't got, I've got to fit this in and I want to write this book and I want to do this project. And, and I'm thinking, I haven't got enough time to fit it all in. And that creates a pressure as well, because I'm thinking, yeah. I, I need to do more. And I think, you know, we keep putting words in, don't we, like time and mm. fear. Mm. And going back to the early conversation, I think we live in a society that's driven by fear yeah, yeah. and transition. I always, I'm fascinated by points in, certainly in lads' lives. You get the end of year six in primary school, go to year seven, they can't cope. Yeah, they yeah, have yeah. meltdowns. Yeah. Then they have to take their options, they have more meltdowns. Then they leave school, more meltdowns. And then they eventually they get into work and then they retire and they have another meltdown. It's and it's like every time there's this big transitional moment comes in. Yeah. And I think we live in a world now because it's all short termism all the time. So there's more transitions, mm. so we can't cope. Mm. Um, in, in the past, you'd pick your career, yeah. and then you'd start it when you were 17, 18, and then you'd leave it when you yeah, were yeah. 60, whatever it was. <clears throat> now it's kind of like, it's always the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, and the next thing, and it's, I'm convinced that has a lot of effect on people's mm. mental state. Yeah. I was with them, um, <clears throat> I was with Steve Cram yesterday, you know, we, we was doing a school yeah, visit. <laughs> no, he was, he was doing a school, he's like doing this motivational speaking thing and, you know, and he was at a school in Darlington, Humber's Not Academy yesterday, and he was talking to the kids and he was talking about, you know, his life and how he ended up as, like, one of the world's great, well, he broke three world records in 19 days in 1985, so 1,500 metres, mile, two miles, he broke the world record, all those world records in 19 days, and you think... And, he, and, and the kids were saying to him, How did, what, what made you that good? And he was, what he was saying was that he realised he was quite good at running. A coach sort of said to him, you could be quite good. But he said, what he was saying was that he just stuck at it. Whereas other kids were beating him. He said, I didn't used to win. He says, you know, the school cross country, so I used to come seventh or whatever. And he said, other kids were beating him. But they, at 18, 19... They started going down the pub or the yeah. or whatever it might be, and Steve just stuck at it. But the other thing, when you you were talking about fear, and we keep talking, this there's a theme about fear here. And he said, I was never afraid to lose, because if I lost, it was part of the experience of me thinking, right, I need to do this now. I need to train harder to be able to get my performances and my results better. And he ended up as like you know, the best runner in the world. Yeah. I'm like, and I was saying to him, well, the reason I've failed in sport, much as I love sport, is because I'm absolutely terrified of losing. I play tennis, and if I'm playing somebody I think I should be beaten, and I'm losing, I get panicky. Yeah, I, f I fear. <laughs> Ever since I was a little lad, I have been afraid to lose. And I think now, having spoken to Steve Cram, that's what the difference is that, you know, he kind of was prepared to lose so that he could get better. I sang at Wembley. That was down the alley as well. Um, and the reason I'm telling you that it was it was for songs of praise. Somebody they were doing "Abide with Me." Yeah. And had a, a representative from each club in the country. And you got to be in the choir if by submitting a story. And I told a story of, of me trying to listen to a match in Leeds, a borough match, and Ali getting so excited now drop the radio out the window because I, I could only get the transmission if I sat on the window so. and I had a choice of either falling out the window or dropping the phone, uh, the, the, the radio and but what, why I'm telling you it's about this fear thing the embracing fear or what, what is it in reality this anxiety thing and we got this, this positive speaker who came in and talked because we were all terrified we were walking out in our own strips in front of Villa fans and Arsenal fans and we knew we were going to get booed and all that so he, he came and he, and he, he talked about the, the similarities between um, how you feel when you're deeply anxious and how you feel when you're really excited mm. he said the physical side of it is very similar it's mm. all about adrenaline and all yeah, that yeah. Sort of stuff so he said if you recognise it you can work out how to deal with that turn the negative yeah. Yeah. and I think it's that you know we were talking about humour 
maybe human is a good tool to deal with fear. Yeah. Because we've all been in, on that roller coaster where we just cry laughing and stuff yeah. like that because we're absolutely terrified. But it becomes funny again. Mm. So maybe there's something in after. And I'm sure I've, there is. I, I tell you, you, sometimes I feel I've crossed the line, but I use it all the time. Humans. Mm. Yeah, anyway, there we go. There you I go. Think we're, at, we're at the end of it. Yeah, we? no, that's good. So we'll both listen to this. <laughs> just, just us, just probably. Us. And comments. No, no, it won't be just us. I'm going to get my mum to listen to it. I'm going to oh, say, have yeah. a listen to this, mum. Um, I love your mum, by the way, if you're listening. Um, you love my mum. No, I love my mum. <laughs> I might love your mum. <laughs> my mum's great. Yeah, there you go. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, see you soon.